The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 There Arose a Pharaoh Who Knew Not Joseph uh, Here's something we can think about for a little while, and that is uh, something I began with in a way, and that is the situation we're in today. We're situated as Christians, we are always situated, and our challenge and our call has to do with the situation that we're in. And the situation is a personal situation having to do with where we are in our lives and in our relationships and what we're called to do and so on and so forth. We're also situated historically. And it's very difficult to understand where we are historically. We're too close to it. We can't see the forest for the trees. And the Holy Spirit blows where he will, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I tell my children, they're all grown, I say to them, you can count on this, something's going to happen, at least one or two things are going to happen that are going to ch- that's going to change everything. And what the world looks like after it will not be the same as what it looked like before it. So we don't know what's going to happen. It may be something very bad. It may be something unexpected. It may have blessings. It may, you know, we we may find a renaissance occurring that we never imagined. These things happen. We don't know. Uh, History is full of surprises. But as we look at it today, there's some very sobering indications. And I think of uh, the passage in... uh, the book of Genesis, which says, uh, And there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. There arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And, of course, the, the Jews had done quite well in Egypt uh, because Joseph had risen to the uh, prominent place and had uh, made sure that his people were uh, recognized and respected and so on. So for a period of time, the Israelites did quite well in Egypt. But suddenly there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And things, the Jews woke up one fine day and things had changed. Jews to this day are waking up in places like Europe with the same, with the same sobering realization There's a tremendous rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and elsewhere. The Jews are our elder brothers and sisters in, in the biblical faith. And they have borne the weight of history in a way that no other people probably have. So, so it's not only a metaphor, but it's, there's an actual reality to that. The Pharaoh knew not Joseph, but I'm thinking of our own culture, uh, which is increasingly de-Christianizing itself. And, and, and of course, in, on this side of the Atlantic, we, we have a more robust religious life, Christian life. But nevertheless, it's a, a t- being attenuated by the day. And uh, perhaps we should think about that because um, it has to do with our vocation. Our task is to witness to the faith 
and to uh, and to help Christianize the world in some way. That doesn't necessarily mean go out and convert people and stand on soapboxes and and so on and so forth. But it means to have, to have that leavening effect on the culture, uh, so that the so that the the culture itself uh, ceases to be toxic to the Christian way of life. Uh, it's very difficult to live in a culture that's toxic to the Christian way of life and to have faith survive. One has to, if it becomes terribly toxic, one has to withdraw and create sort of circle the wagons, homeschooling and so on and so forth. And I have great sympathy for the people who have begin, begun to circle the wagons. But we have to remember that the ancient Jews understood at some point in their history that their own experience, unique though it was, was for the purpose of benefiting the whole world. So we may circle our wagons, but we always have to remember that the purpose of our faith and our witness is not for us. The church does not exist for herself. She exists for the world that is actively trying to often actually actually trying to expel her. Uh, so there's a drama going on. And then, as I mentioned the other night, uh, the fact that the world is hostile to Christianity make, will make us better Christians. So in some way, we have to be empathetic with people that are rejecting Christianity because they are contributing to our faith. They're making us better Christians. So we have to, and so we're in a drama with them. We have, as I've often said, we have the good part in the drama. We get to have our faith enriched, and they have the less, uh, you know, the, the less beneficial part in the drama. They get to be the naysayers, and that's a pretty sad thing. So we should try to experience the renewal of our faith in such a way that it is of some use to them. The Christian way is always those who have the blessings should try to share them with those who don't. So those who are trying to get rid of Christianity uh, are making, if we respond correctly, deepen our faith, and we should take that faith and make it do something with it that's a benefit to them, even though they don't want to have any to do with it. So these are all the paradoxes involved. But we're in a we're in a a perilous time. And uh, I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I don't want to become too political. But when one says uh, the Pharaoh knows not Joseph, we have a very conspicuous example of that in our political life today. We have a Pharaoh, if I may put it that way, uh, who only knows Joseph tangentially under the auspices of Jeremiah Wright and Saul Alinsky, uh, and who is a ardent, the most ardent proponent of abortion and uh, embryo destructive research and so on. So we have to respond, and this is the response can be prayer, it can be. Um, uh, becoming involved in various things, pro-life things, for example. And we each have to search our own conscience. But I would point out a, a couple of 
complications, or not complications, just try to uh, explicate this situation a little bit. The first is, I, I thought about this passage in Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its taste or its tang, with what will it be seasoned? With what will the earth be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So you could say that uh, many in our culture today, the cultural command centers have been commandeered by people who are antithetical to traditional Christianity. Cultural command centers being the universities, not just the universities, with a few exceptions, the entire educational system. Uh, We can now, I think, safely refer to public education as the government schools and the communications industry, the entertainment industry, what we call Hollywood, etc. These have been uh, commandeered by people who are unsympathetic explicitly uh, to Christianity, with very few exceptions, but some notable exceptions. But that means we live in a world, and our children live in a world. That's the main thing. Our children now live in a world that where they are bombarded by messages all the time. Remember, we're mimetic creatures. We're in. We are susceptible to mimetic suggestion. And we are getting a ton of it all the time. There's no respite. It's coming in at every radio, television, iTunes, uh, iPods, uh, you name it, Internet, constantly. Even when it's innocuous to some extent, it destroys silence. It keeps uh, someone from recollecting, and so on and so forth. So regardless of the explicit message, it's a little bit like um, uh, the medium is the message, you know. doesn't The message is toxic in itself, but even if it weren't, the fact that it's all pervasive would be enough. Uh, so this is the kind of world we live in. What are we going to do about it? it it's not at all clear what we're going to do about it, but I will call, call your attention. So the reason I read the thing of Matthew, the salt has lost its savor. The reason it's being trampled underfoot is because we have, speaking collectively, we have not proclaimed it joyfully and robustly enough. It has lost its savor. So it's really our fault. Now, we were coaxed into it and coddled into it and and uh, and so on and so forth. But it's only when that we uh, restore the tang and seasoning to that salt and the joy and robustness to the Christian proclamation uh, that we can respond to this being trampled underfoot. I think it's an interesting metaphor for what's going on. It throws the ball back into our court. Christianity is either exciting... Or it's not worth, uh, you know, the time of day. But I would I'd call attention to the, I think, the problem in our time, which generally we can just call political correctness. But, you know, St. Paul said, 
Sin takes advantage of the law. And he said, so the law can never get you there. Because the law exists to shape us into the kind of creatures that God created. But the law is a set of rules that we have to obey in order to get to a certain place. But the problem with the law is that the rules trigger the very phenomenon that they're designed to prevent. Classic example is the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now the reason for that, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt, it doesn't matter, any one of them will do. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not uh, covet thy neighbor's uh, goods, and so on and so forth, kill. Why not do those things? Because when you do those things, all hell breaks loose. You set up a social, you set up a social uh, melodrama in which pretty soon you have the Hatfields and the McCoys and, and a shootout and chaos and madness and, and then somebody has to be scapegoated. And then you just have conventional religion. You just have a return in some form to the conventional structure at the heart of which is a scapegoating phenomenon. So don't do those things the law says. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't uh, kill, don't commit adultery, and so on. But if you catch a woman in adultery, you get to stone her. So you get to participate in a scapegoating. Or if you catch somebody stealing, you, you get to cut their hand off, uh, or etc., etc. So that's, and Paul knew this because he saw Stephen being stoned. You see what I mean? So he says, you can't get there from here. Sin takes advantage of the law. Well, lo and behold, wouldn't you know that sin takes advantage of the gospel too? Because the gospel awakens our empathy for the victim. I've heard Rene Girard say many times, if you went back into the ancient world and uh, you, somebody is uh, victimized, Somebody is regarded as a as a creep and a culprit and a jerk and is somehow dis, you know victimized. If he were to then come before the magistrate and say, "I've been victimized," <laughs> he'd be victimized all over again. <laughs> Whereas in our world, it carries a lot of weight. You know, as a matter of fact, it can be quite lucrative <laughs> if you do it right. Uh, so the place of the we live in an extraordinary culture that cannot be explained except by reference to the gospel. Now, do we have we stopped victimizing? Of course not. But our whole rhetoric is about victimization, and we lament it, we we repent of it, we offer reparations, we do everything to help the victim, and so on and so forth, which is a very good thing. But sin takes advantage of that. So now, if you can somehow make a plausible claim to having victimary status, you know, it can work to benefit. Like, So this is the world we live in. Many people now present uh, modern liberalism as more Christian than Christianity because it's inclusive, it's non-judgmental, uh, it's attentive to the victim, and so on and so forth. 
the fact that it overlooks a whole class of the most the most vulnerable victim is perhaps to be called to the attention of those who propose, propose that. But the point is that we live in a world where it's nothing but the gospel. Everywhere you look, it's the gospel. It's being perverted, turned upside down, uh, and so on. But it's that. In other words, the gospel is so triumphant at one level that only mimicking it, the only way to compete with it is to mimic it. And to, and to claim that the mimicry is superior to the original. Which is basic, the basic, uh, claim of, uh, of late modernity that, uh, it is more compassionate, more sympathetic, more tolerant, more diverse, more, uh, comp- uh, so on and so forth than Christianity. More Christian than Christianity. What to do in that circumstance, I don't know. We perhaps point out the great gaps in that empathy, but I just call it to your attention as something that uh, that is part of the world we live in. The other thing being uh, relativism or multiculturalism or whatever uh, term it goes by, uh, where, uh, every th- where the, the decision about truth, truth is put in brackets, is put in uh, quotations. Scare quotes. The truth is what you believe it to be and what I believe it to be. And, and therefore it's entirely privatized. And, uh, and so no one has any right to claim a truth, speak a truth, uh, because that, that's only her truth or his truth. And we have this classic Catholic understanding is that the inseparability of truth, goodness, and beauty and the idea that you can relativize and privatize truth without thereby having the same effect on goodness and beauty is naive. So as soon as you start to relativize truth and privatize it, you do the same thing with goodness. That is to say, when you blur the distinction between the true and the false, inevitably you blur the distinction between the good and the evil and between beauty and ugliness. I don't know when the last time you visited the Museum of Modern Art is, but you'd be surprised at how blurred these aesthetic things have become. So we live in a crisis-ridden world. And the only thing operative in that world right now, the moral triumph of that world, is the gospel, which is being perverted and exploited in a, in a sinful way by some and watered down by the rest of us. So all the more reason to, uh, to reclaim it and to uh, proclaim it with a, with a vitality and a joy. One last point, and that is Nietzsche brilliantly said, I made a kind of reference to this earlier, Nietzsche said, if you want to get rid of Christianity, which he, of course, did, don't bother with the creed. Who cares? You have to destroy the Christian ethic, he said. It's that that we have to eliminate. Let them have their creed. Now, what Nietzsche meant by the Christian ethic is the empathy for victims. To his credit, Nietzsche saw political correctness already creeping in. 
he missed, I think, misconstrued it. But to that extent, he was he saw something legitimate. But nevertheless, he wanted to get rid of this empathy for victims. He wanted to return to the pagan world, which regards victims as simply roadkill on the way to greatness. You see what I mean? So he wants to, to turn the Good Samaritan parable upside down. You know, you don't stop for that. You just head for greatness. But he said, if you want to get rid of Christianity, destroy its ethic, forget about its creed. Today, to go back something we talked about earlier, it's not the ethic of the empathy for victims. That's being distorted in a politically correct way. But the ethic that's being completely subverted is the, is the nuptial ethic. The ethic of uh, our nuptiality, our sexual ethic. Only Satan, I don't want to, I always catch myself when I start talking about Satan. But, I mean, it would only, only the genius of Satan could have figured this one out. Because if you destroy that, that experience of the, that mystery of self-donation, going back to Adam saying this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. If you can destroy that experience, that is the experience, that's the experience that changes lives. That's probably the most powerful natural sacrament we have. And it's not entirely natural, it's the point at which nature is touched by grace and one feels this this longing to self-donate and it's a tremendous entree into the mystery of the Trinity without anybody ever realizing it. If you can turn sexuality into a recreational sport so that mystery is lost or uh, attenuated you destroy the very thing that most that that is the access to most people to the trinitarian mystery so it's not about sexual morality ultimately i'm all for sexual morality but nietzsche understood nietzsche was not making a moral argument uh, he understood that you can destroy... And he wasn't talking about sexual morality. He was talking about the empathy for victims. But it applies perfectly to this. We don't realize how what a direct hit on Christianity that is. It's not a peripheral attack. It's a direct attack on the experience that leads into the Trinitarian mystery. And... As again, thank goodness we have John Paul's theology of the body. And this is why I think, for the time being, the issues that face us as Christians in this culture uh, are those, are precisely the three issues, which I'm very happy to say, the, the authors of the Manhattan Declaration have uh, have uh, chosen as the three primary issues. The life issue, the protection of life from conception to natural death. Marriage, as the exclusive covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. And religious 
the freedom of religion, conscience, freedom of conscience. Uh, these are the are, are the things that have to be preserved today. And the first, uh, the first two, has to do with this mystery of, of the Trinity. We now conspicuously live in a world where uh, the Pharaoh knows not Joseph. This is part of for those of us who feel responsibility in the realm of culture. Those are the issues I think we have to address. They're not peripheral issues. They go right to the heart of the Trinity, right to the heart of who we are as as the uh, children of God.